Welcome to bonus episode 54 of the Gameable Saturday Morning Podcast, a tabletop role-playing podcast. We're watching cartoons from across the era of Saturday morning animation, delving into their plots, settings, and characters for gaming inspiration, except when we talk about anime. I'm Chris Newton. And I'm Alistair McNair. And we are back to discuss Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood once again. Uh, last time we talked about plots. It was very difficult. This show basically has one big long plot that defies recap. But now we're through the hardest part and we're on to talking about all of the things that make this anime so fantastic for gaming. We talked last time about what a great show this was, and there's just so much to talk about. I kind of wanted to ask you a question, Alistair, as mm-hmm. we start, because it's going to be hard for us to cover everything that we love in this episode, whether it's a character or it could even be a, a setting or something like that, a little mini setting. What's a thing that you love from this anime that we're probably not going to hit in the rest of this discussion? Um, I really enjoy all of the chimeras. The the chimera mm, okay. sidecast is just it's it's a whole different like subclass of people in this world that I guess we will probably touch on it again later. But all of them are just really fun for me. Huh? It's interesting because they they kind of like we know there are chimeras from early on, but then they really become a big part of the cast later in the series. Not exactly out of nowhere, but it's like it's a surprising turn, and it's it's interesting to have them around. It almost feels like this is one of those. Um, toyetic cartoons of the 80s you know where it's like all of a sudden here comes season four and it's like here's four new dudes who all have visually interesting designs and different powers and stuff what was something like that for you uh i liked some like i don't know why exactly but um the silver alchemist the little guy the guy with the peg leg um he's one of scar's yeah. victims i like him a lot i have questions because he produces all those weapons mm-hmm. you know like he throws throwing stars and stuff, but he has to be getting them from somewhere because he can't just make them out of nothing. So I don't know if he like carries a bunch of silver on him and then like transmutes it like up his sleeve or something into weapons. But um, he just strikes me as really cool. I want to know his story. I, I looked him up a little and I found that um, he was the only person at the flashback to the Ishvalan War who smiles at the order to execute the civilian population. <sighs> so... Maybe not a character I want to play necessarily, <laughs> but um, I'm interested in his story. He He's actually a really good example for me of the nature of this show to for you to have a character concept as simple as Alchemist who spins and has a lot of weapons and make it into a character. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about like the the huge possibilities of alchemy in so many ways. But one of them is that it gives you a great like grabby way to define a character and then spin them out from there. We talked last time about how these characters have like defining combat styles. You could rather than coming up with a character and then thinking like, what is the right alchemy for them? You could easily start with the hook of the alchemy and then build the character out from there and end up with something just as deep. Um this show has like a voluminous cast. It's, I mean, not only are we not going to touch on all the little towns in Amestris, which many of them have kind of their own identity and their own fun thing going on, but we're not, there's so many characters who are cool. We're not going to talk about like Miles from Briggs, super cool character. I'd be surprised if he comes up again. Um, and of course, we can't fail to mention, bar none, the best character in my mind in Full Metal Alchemist, uh, Hawkeye's dog. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, no, definitely a character here. I cannot tell you how worried I was for that dog. As this anime got grimmer and grimmer, every time that dog would show up, 
I was just like so tight faced at the screen. I was just like, I you cannot do anything to this dog. And you know, spoilers, spoilers for the better. They don't do anything nope. to the dog. So don't worry, listener. If you're as sensitive as I am, this anime does not kill that little dog. He's great. Yeah. But yeah, like all these little bit characters, they're so cool. Uh, we just we have to get into this. Normally, I try to have more time between like starting the episode and and characters, but we I, we have to talk about them right now. So uh, let's talk about them in a round of I'd play that. All right, you are my guest this week, which means you get to go first. Who would you play for I'd Play That? So I think that I would pick Ling, along hmm. with Greed, but Ling. Ah, interesting. I think that he gives a uh, an interesting... It lets you come into the campaign and be someone from outside, and just the shenanigans that he gets into with, you know... Just character-wise, you know, he's you know he has that whole like fainting thing that is his gimmick for the first several episodes, where he just like he eats a house and a half worth of food, and then just tries to like skimp out. But like he is also incredibly competent and has a couple of incredibly competent bodyguards. He's he's a really interesting character through the course of the uh, remainder of the show. And so I think I would very much enjoy that mix of being able to be competent and mobile and being able to claim, oh, I don't understand what's going on here. I'm from somewhere else. Woo. I like Ling so much. He's he's a great example of a character who like already had plenty going on to carry him through the series and then got this whole thing with greed stacked on top of him where, you know, the greed homunculus is kind of incarnated in his body that gives him a whole other level. I really do like Ling a lot. Uh, do you see Lan Fan and Fu, who are like his ninja bodyguards, do you see those as facets of the Ling character in play, or would you rather have other players playing them? I think you could do either way. Like, if you're playing a more limited scope game, you could have someone be Fu and someone else be, uh, was it Lan Fan? And then uh, mm-hmm. if you wanted to have a much broader cast with doing a lot more things, you could have them be NPCs that are attached to his character. Yeah, I, I think that either way works, depending on how big your player group is. I think that's, we're going to find, like, that's almost the limiting factor. There are so many great playable characters in this show if you had a player for everyone that deserves a player, it would be an unmanageable table. So at a certain point, it's like if somebody's playing Fu and Lan Fan and Ling, now that's three seats at the table taken up by these people from Xing who aren't invested in the Amestris plot. So there may start to be like, you may find the campaign just drifting in a different direction. But of course, maybe that's what you want. Um, there's tons of room here. For me, for I'd play that, I went back and forth on this so much. But I think Ultimately, I've got to go with Colonel Mustang. Mm, yes, solid choice. Yeah, it's not even that he's my favorite character. There are so many characters here I would love to play. It's that I was mainly thinking of what do I get to engage? Like what parts of this show do I love and what characters get to touch them? And Colonel Mustang is just in the right place at the right time. Like he gets to do the internal military stuff a lot. Uh, He gets a great cast of, like, soldiers. He's invested in that whole, like, you know, he has superiors and he has subordinates. You get to, like, navigate that bureaucracy. But he's also an alchemist. I don't want to play this game as not an alchemist. As great as characters like Hawkeye are. Yeah. 
I want to do alchemy if we're playing Full Metal Alchemist. So he gets to do that as well. You know, he's a competent combatant. He's not just somebody like, you know, Marco, who kind of knows alchemy, but doesn't really get into fights. And uh, he also has like a lot of character background. He was in the Ishvalan War, which is something I really would like to explore. So he just kind of gives me the stuff that I want. My only regret is that his alchemy is not more sort of creative and sophisticated, but I would be interested in maybe taking him in that direction. It would be fun to play Mustang after the events of the series when his alchemy has kind of gotten an upgrade and get into him doing more creative things with his magic. Yeah, the the trying to pick the one, one piece of hay in the haystack that is extremely <laughs> playable characters in this setting... I, I had the hardest time coming up with a character just because it was like, there are so many that I could play. And depending on where we were taking this game, you could pick half a dozen characters that would make amazing PCs or create your own. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And that's how I felt about it too. Like I was trying to narrow it down. And at the same time, what I thought was, at the end of the day though, maybe I'm lobbying for an original character if we're playing this because there's so many new things to do with alchemy, with you know roles in the government, with like, you know, playing characters from other places, um, you know, whether it's a new place you've created or a character who can get into a different facet of like Shing's culture or, you know, this Ishval stuff. Like if I wanted to deal with Ishval, maybe I wouldn't play Scar because he's such a specific character. There's a whole, you know, it's a whole nation full of people. Um, I could, you know, play a new character. So, But at the very same time, you know, Scar, for example, is an Ishval and monk. So like you could have like all the good parts of Scar, you know, well, some of the fun parts of Scar without necessarily having to be, you know, dark and brooding all the time, which mm-hmm. I know I don't I don't particularly enjoy that particular type of character, which is the only reason I didn't pick him is because like, mm, I don't know that I can be brooding enough for Scar, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good um, a good catch there, too, because there's also such different um, emotional levels and like attitudes to these different characters. Like as much as I love Major Armstrong, I'm not at all confident in my ability to play Major Armstrong. I'm looking for a player who can play Major Armstrong to be at my table for sure. It's just not me. I, yes, but I had like a long short list for I'd play that here. Uh, What do you think about, uh, you were talking about like what direction we're taking the campaign. If we're starting a campaign, Mm -hmm. what questions are we asking about what kinds of characters are we all going to play? Kind of, we need to know what our core situation is that we're going to be engaging because that's going to inform the kinds of characters we play immensely. So, you know, we could be some sort of, you know, military group coming out of the Mestris, or we could be, you know, foreign dignitaries doing research, or we could be doing, you know, internal work and research, kind of like peacekeeping. I mean, there there are many, many different things, but depending on which group you're associating with and what direction you're wanting to take that, it strongly tells you, informs what kind of characters you're going to be choosing. Would you be interested then in trying to sort of narrow down to a subset of this cast so that we're all playing basically the same type of character? Or would you also be open to an idea where we're sort of playing a one of each situation, like where it's we're playing Ling and Edward and Colonel Mustang and then, you know, Scar? Or would you rather say like, oh, those are like different people from like four different parties? In oh, this I, th- I think you could do both. But I think it's easier to not just throw everybody into a session with a character they already want to play. I think it's best to come into it being like, okay, we're all going to be a one of a kind. So everybody, you're going to be this thing for this party. So, you know, you're going to be the one Scar or the one Edward and the one Mm. Colonel Mustang. Or we're all going to be, you know, state alchemists. 
Like, and I think it's just important to set that tone before you bring a character to the table. That's a great distinction to make because, I mean, on the one hand, you know, for like the sort of ease of the GM and traditional play, maybe you want to say, let's all be state alchemists or let's all be travelers from Shing. Let's not mix it up. But I do think that's missing some of the potential of this setting. However, given the option that we're going to play all these disparate characters, I think you're right that rather than, hey, everybody bring whatever you want to play, let's still maybe create them together. Because you were pointing out last time, these characters are so interrelated that like, say, for example, a great example, this would be Winry and Scar, two totally different characters from totally different sides of the setting. But if they're being created at the same table, we can interrelate them the way that they're related in the show. And it's suddenly much easier to put them in the same plot. And the fact that that interrelation goes to history actually helps a lot in forming that plot, because this show is so much about history, that if we can have characters who are historically related, like we don't all have to be best friends, but we can have a past that connects us, then that also invests our player group inherently in the past, which really is a lot of what the show is about. Yeah, definitely. What are you looking at as the key elements of creating a character for Full Metal Alchemist? Depending on the style of game you want to do, if you're picking up more of a, you know, adventure of the week and you're going to lean into the amazing set piece combat that, you know, is in this, I think that you're you're kind of picking your character's core fighting style. So, you know, Scar has his combination of destructive alchemy and martial arts you have you know colonel mustang who's almost completely alchemy and then you have like edward who's a mix of alchemy and you know martial arts and then you've got the shingies people who are almost like a anime ninja Mm -hmm. team with their thing and so i think i think when you're sitting down to make a character you know if you're going for that kind of game you're kind of setting up what is their fighting style and then because I think the political stuff is very much a part of this setting and the, the feel that is this show. I think you're doing a lot of setting up, you know, what, what are your connections? Who do you know? Yeah, that's uh, situating the character in the world. I think that's a, like a good one-two punch, if you'll pardon the expression, with setting up like a, an effective and, and compelling combat style. Because it gives you so much to do on a scene-to-scene level, but then it also makes sure that you have some kind of a context. There's some way to pull you into things and like uh it's like we talked about way back in the lion king right where like the pride lands give us a place to set stakes in the same way there's so much potential for like rampaging weirdos in this setting it's important to make sure each character has a place to set stakes somebody and something that they care about so that we can kind of weave it all together um yeah i agree with that And, and i would maybe add on like i think this is not every game benefits from a lot of backstory for player characters but I think this one really would. I would be looking for characters with a history. I would be very wary of the person who comes to me only with, you know, I am a water alchemist. And this is my this is my combat style. This is what it looks like when I fight. This is what I care about. I'm a lieutenant in the military. That's all great. And that's all necessary. But if I have no concept of like where you came from, then it's going to be hard for me to do parallel storytelling with the other characters with you. Yeah. Because, like, I need to know where you were at during the Ishvalan conflict. I need to know, like, are you from Central or are you from somewhere else? You know, what's your what's your ancestry? Because these characters, so much of what generates story for them is what they have in their backstory and what's under the surface for them. I'd be afraid of somebody creating a character who is all surface. 
Because even if that surface is cool, like one of the great things about this show is nobody is all surface. No. Literally everyone in this setting has stuff going on underneath and some goal that they're aiming for and some way that they've crossed somebody in this plot at some point. Yeah, I love that. And I, I, it's it's part of what makes this cast in some ways like unmanageably big, like certainly for gaming and even sometimes for the show. Like people come back and it's like, who was that guy? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's great because I think it goes with the the ethos of the show and it connects to the themes of the show, which is that there are no mooks in this show, right? Like there are no nameless hordes. Occasionally there's a character, you know, in a group combat scene or whatever whose name we don't know. But every time we get a moment to spend with someone, they are a full human being Yeah, who we know has a history. No one is not important. And that's essential to t- storytelling in this world, I feel. Even the, uh, I said, even the nameless hordes of Briggs soldiers or Central soldiers, all you kind of get a sense of who they are as individuals and what they are there for. So that even, even the nameless hordes of, you know, mooks get a driving... Uh, motivation behind them yeah yeah a sense of a personality you know you feel like you know the Briggs soldiers even though not not everyone is a named character uh, we know kind of like what kind of people they are and that's so important because this show is all about I mean the very idea of a philosopher's stone that like the greatest power is attained through the the sacrifice in a sense of a human life a human soul that is about the fact that this whole world is driven by equivalent exchange you know, you trade something of equal value to get what you want. And so at the top of that hierarchy of value is the human life. And that's every human life. So like every single character you meet, you know, if you're set upon by a mistress soldiers because you're trying to break into a lab and one of them starts shooting a gun at you, that guy, whoever he is, right, that mook you're trying to take out, he is at the top of metaphysical and like ethical value in this setting. You can't just kill him and feel okay no. about it. No, the setting puts great weight on your actions and the violence you take. Mm-hmm. And that's great. I mean, that's that makes it hard, I think, for a GM sometimes because it's so much easier to run a campaign where people are only important when they're player characters or main antagonists. But it is so much um, more engrossing and I think more ethically sound in a certain way to run a campaign where every person is a person and you're expected to treat them that way. Yes, which, I mean, is part of the reason that... Uh having so many alchemists and then having the homunculi around make things helpful because they give yeah. you people to fight that you, you know, don't necessarily have to hold back against quite so much. Oh, that's a great point. That that level having an antagonist a big bad who is a perversion of that human life, you know, who is powered by a philosopher's stone who in a, in a sense is this sort of like aberration created by the abuse of stolen human lives having that like relatively guilt-free antagonist i mean it's sometimes questionable like you know with envy or whoever but yeah or with greed but for the most part we can feel pretty good about launching our big attacks at them that's important as the characters especially dawn in their moral consciousness that's a great point um what do you think about the sort of fluff aspects of these characters because we're i mean inevitably our conversation has to go to like mechanizing alchemy right because that's so important but on the way there how do you feel about the other side of these characters? If you're playing a non-alchemist, say, like uh, General Armstrong or Hawkeye, in terms of, like, so much of their contribution to the story is relationships, do we want systems for that? Or would you rather leave that to roleplay or somewhere in between? Um, 
I think this is one of those cases where it depends on the group. I've played with groups that you can leave it to roleplay and it'll come out extremely strong. Uh, I also know other groups that I have played with where you would probably want to try to mechanize that, even though I'm not really sure how you would do it. Hmm. But I will say one part of this that would be difficult to convert over to the gaming table is just how visually grounded most of these characters are. A hmm. lot of each of these characters' fluff is based off of, as you put it, is based off of some defining physical characteristics. The Armstrong family all have that one curl. Riza Hawkeye has her two pistols that she has with her at all times. Uh, Olivier Armstrong has her saber with her at all times. There's There are all these little visual things about the characters that kind of help detail them and speak to their place in the world. And that I think that would be difficult to pull off at the table but is important to the characters. I think I may have sidestepped your question slightly. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we can I think we can tie it together because it goes to the same sort of thing, which is that basically you've got these characters who have a lot of richness in the show, and that goes to like who they are and like where they fit in this world. Like a character like Hawkeye is a great example of this. It's hard to really write like you know a, a succinct like stat, like a freeform stat for what Hawkeye is so good at. She's just a real badass, and she's like she's the colonel's loyal subordinate, but also best friend who is not afraid to tell him when he's wrong. Um, she is so like competent and vigilant, and yet sensitive. Like her honesty with Edward when they have that scene where she's basically laying out for him what happened in the Ishvalan War, which is something he's too young to have been around for. Really, that is a moment of like honesty and connection that she has with him that it's hard to imagine other characters having quite that connection, and yet. Hawkeye's the girl you go to when shit's got to get done, right? And so that's all really hard to put on a character sheet. And I think you're right that a lot of that is carried by style. It's it's this is a very cartoon cartoon in the sense that like the way these characters are drawn tells you it it really boils down what you need to know about them, and that would be hard to bring to the table. It makes me think though of uh, sort of a stunt system like in uh, Exalted you know, or um, like other games where your description of your actions contributes to their mechanical success really encourages you to engage the how of your character, because especially this helps when you have like a ton of competent characters as you do in this show. It helps if everybody can do it to really focus on how you do it and how that indicates, you know, your personality. So I would maybe go there for this. and, And with the relationships, for example, we can't really maybe mechanize like a relationship rating between Hawkeye and Mustang, but we could have just the barest like connection between them. Like there's a connection between these two that ties into how Hawkeye gets things done and how Mustang gets things done. Yeah. D- encourages them to draw each other into like their descriptions and their actions. I think that would that would be the incentive to get players to go there, which I think is what you were talking about, about like some tables you need to mechanize this because otherwise players won't do it. This would just give them that kick in the ass to like, if Mustang's going to do something, get Hawkeye in it, show how they're connected. Yeah. And then leave the details to, to role play. This is, this is making me think a lot about uh, the, what kind of systems we would use Mm. to actually play this. And it's not quite, I don't think it's quite time for us to actually talk (laughs) about that. So yeah, it's not quite time, but we, you know, we have a kind of a regular question that we always ask that always dips a little into system, which is how do you sort of what's on the character sheet? How do you mechanize this character? What parts are important for them to be mechanical? And to me, 
the clear answer to that here is alchemy. Yeah. What are you looking for out of like character creation and system for alchemy specifically for your alchemist character? So I honestly, I would be hesitant to make it too pinned down. I don't, mm -hmm. I, I think the wide range of uses for alchemy, I mean, we see alchemy used for everything from repairing like a balcony to like building a dome out of dirt to capture a homunculi in there there are endless and varied uses of alchemy that are only uh the only limitation is the material at hand and the imagination of the character who's using it and i don't think that that's something you can necessarily put on a character sheet if that makes sense. I, I'm not sure like what you would put on a character sheet in order to capture that. Mm -hmm. I would definitely want to like state a focus of your alchemy. Like, you know, Edward is the full metal alchemist. He has focused on metal. And then you have, you know, Colonel Mustang. He's all about fire. And the freezing alchemist is all about water. And Dr. Marco is all about human transmutation of various kinds. And so I think capturing what they have focused on is important, but I don't know what else I would try to put down on a character sheet about them. Yeah, I, I think the focus for sure. And then, um, you know, what that reminds me of is um, in Ars Magica, there is, and I may be forgetting the name of this thing, but I think it's called a sigil. But basically, it's like your defining quirk of your magic. Anybody can do these these different effects, but... When you do magic, it's always a little bit colored by your distinctive identity and, and your twist. And that's how other people could like identify who cast a spell, for example. Okay. I might be interested in defining two or three things like that for each of these characters, especially because they're going to share elements. But giving those little quirks, it would help describe in combat. Like if you're, let's say there's, there's such a thing as like creative player fatigue, right? So like you're having an extended fight and maybe you had a rough day at work. And it's hard to think of creative things to do with your alchemy. Having a few little prompts of what your alchemy is like that sets you apart from others would maybe help with that. Like I read a, a little trivia about Major Armstrong is that alchemical creations are always drawn with like uh, cracks and imperfections to show their artificial nature, but not with Major Armstrong. It's always perfect. So when he makes like yeah. those little flying busts of himself, they're like perfect and sparkly. Yeah. They shine that, and they're polished and they're perfectly yeah. formed. Even if he's just making like arrowheads, they look immaculate. Yeah, <laughs> immaculate is a good way to put it. And that would be a great thing to have on the character sheet, maybe without a great deal of mechanical effect, but just like, okay, so I'm an earth guy, but also it's it, everything looks perfect, right? It's like, you know, aspect, like on fleek. These, like when I make a little version of my head to throw at someone, it's just right. And that would sort of convey character. I think what you could probably do is a system of finding, you know, three or four modifiers, probably of different categories, and then... Like, okay, Major Armstrong, you know, he does earth, he does artillery, he's, it's all pristine and immaculate, he does really good work, and, you know, and so then when you're getting into, you know, whatever system you end up using, if he's in a situation where those things come into, a, a, they help him, then you can give him a bonus to whatever checks or rolls or attacks he's trying to make or whatever the situation is, he can just, he can be better at it because of these factors that, you know, he has that you picked for him. I like that a lot. 
and and depending on you know this is a dial you can turn what you're suggesting is something that sounds like um it would lend itself to a very free form exchange almost like um you know if you were using wushu or something like that a uh, very free form back and forth combat that would work really well if you wanted to or if you were using a system that is more largely mechanical like a you know a generic system like uh say savage worlds or even gurps what you could do instead is have like a substructure of okay, you can invest X number of points in reshaping Earth in this, this, and this way. So like by mass, by volume, I'm not that kind of player, but like if that's the system you're in and then add on top of it, but you get all these extra points and additions if you match one of your descriptors so that it would encourage people at least to move beyond the baseline of their powers and try to reach a little further by doing something that's very stylish. That's interesting, yeah. Marvel superheroes, the old face rip system, actually does something like that where you have powers, but you can also attempt power stunts where you roll your power rating to do something your powers don't do in a creative way. (laughs) So like if the invisible woman wants to fly, she can kind of like ride an invisible bubble up and she just rolls her power. And if she makes it, then yeah, basically you can fly right now because you're just winging it. You're finding a way to do it with your powers. And that's really cool. I think that would be an interesting way to do it. I know uh, a lot of what I'm thinking, I've been listening to a, a lot of some actual plays that deal with the, the some of the systems based off the Blades in the Dark system, mm. and that system does a lot of effect of you know is this how risky is your positioning how mm. how hefty of an effect could you get out of what you're trying to do and then how many die are you rolling to actually get to achieve what it is you're trying to do and then you know depending on those die rolls what kind of uh, complications occur and I think this would be really really good for a system like that because you could set up your modifiers and it's like oh well you're doing something that involves your element and you're doing it at you know your strong range or method and so you get all these bonuses to do it but it's still freeform enough and flowing and flexible enough that you could really mess with uh, I like I like that particular dice resolution mechanic for this yeah. I, and I think like what we're converging on with all these different ideas, which would work for different systems, it seems to be like, we do want to dig in mechanically to alchemy because it's important to express character. But the place yes. we want to dig in is not like how much weight can this bridge support? It's like, what is the story significance of this move that I'm using? When yes. I create this bridge, I want to know, like, is this a desperate, like, Hail Mary, like, I'm going to try to basically vault over this combat by creating this giant arch that's like at the limit of my power and I'm like teetering on it. Or is this like I'm shooting like a train through this encounter? Is this the arch that falls apart after, you know, you build it and it gets you just across the chasm and then collapses because you're that desperate? Or is this, you know, this will stand here for 100 years? Yeah. And this is like changing the scope of the fight. Like, did we go from an open field to like now we're fighting in a bubble because I'm that strong and this is exactly in my wheelhouse? And and what does the bubble look like? Is it perfect or is it rough? Like, that's what we want to dig into. And players have to describe that. They have to be creative. Yeah. But it's also great if it has teeth and it actually affects what you get to do with your next turn. Like we were talking about last time, like I want to take moves that make the other player who's playing the other state alchemist go like, oh, well, now I can't do what I was going to do. This changes everything. Now I got to think of a creative way to deal with this earth problem with a fire solution. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about other things we want to deal like what else do we need to sort of build and use characters? I guess one key question is, is there anybody in this whole show who is not a viable player character? <sighs> 
I, I think it goes back to it depends on what exactly the campaign is about. And I think there are like a very few characters, probably like uh, Cheska from early on in the show, would be an example of a character that's not actually available. She is pretty firmly in the NPC territory, but I feel like you could be almost anybody else. Hmm. Now, now, if I'm remembering correctly, Cheska is the one who uh, she used to work in the library. She ends up being the librarian. Yep. Yeah. And she has like the eidetic memory. And so she doesn't understand alchemy, but she remembered a bunch of important alchemical yep. texts. She could write down dozens and dozens of books because she read them all once because she read things compulsively. She didn't care what they were, what was in them. <laughs> then I'm going to have, if she's your example, I'm going to have to go ahead and say everyone is a viable player character because for me, I would love to play Jessica. Like, okay. <laughs> I mean, but, but it, but it depends on, it depends on the campaign. Like, could she yeah. be in, could she be in this story? No. As yeah, a player no. character, not a chance because she doesn't do combat. But if we were doing like, let's say that this whole campaign were Colonel Mustang's like slow ploy to gain power in the oh, government. Yeah, absolutely. Then she's a character. Yeah, she's working in the library. She's in Central. She's trusted but non-political. She's got an eidetic memory, and she can transfer but not understand complex alchemical information. Like she's your girl if you're going to have a secret plot to overthrow the government. But it's she's stuck in that kind of campaign. And likewise, like the homunculi. I mean, you wouldn't really play gluttony or sloth in this adventure. But you might play them in a different adventure. And I mean, you could play greed in this adventure. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I mean, we see that with Envy. I mean, if the if the dice had kind of fallen differently, Envy could have ended up as a player character here because he wants what the humans have. He could have made the same kind of choice that Greed makes, where he ultimately sort of joins the hero's side. I mean, even Father, honestly, you wouldn't play him as Father, but as the dwarf in the flask. Yeah. This sort of like dark creature who is like seemingly very innocent and almost whimsical and yet has such a craving to be more than he is. It's almost like a, like a Paradise Lost situation. It's like this very initially sympathetic character who has this desire to be something more that is basically disordered and ultimately turns him into a villain. If you play him earlier in his story, he could even be a viable PC, a sort of uh, player character familiar to another character. Yeah. There's, yeah, it's just this, this world is just so sprawling. There's so much going on. You might almost want to start with what corner of the setting are we in and, you know, what are we doing here? And then kind of build up characters from that if you want to, because you can create or pull in bit characters from anywhere and make a viable PC group. Which goes back to what we were saying about you need to know what it is you're going to be playing before you make characters, because everybody is on the table in the right circumstance. And that's a good transition to talk about setting. In many ways, this show is... The story is about the Elrics, but the plot is about the setting. I, I'll, I'll give you your pick because this is a huge setting. What's like the most compelling to you or like the one that immediately comes to mind? What's the setting that excites you in this show? Uh, describe what do you mean by the setting that... If you're, if you're thinking of like, okay, we're going to play Full Metal Alchemist. It's original characters and we're playing a new adventure. Where or when, what are we engaging that excites you? Examples would be like Briggs. Like that fort, that that culture, that's so cool. Or, hey, Shing, we haven't even done anything in Shing, but obviously they've got a cool culture and a totally new form of alchemy to learn about. Oh, okay. So yeah, Briggs is definitely right up there at the top of that list because Briggs is really cool. And they've got this whole, you know, everybody works together and everything will eat you alive if you don't work together. So that would be very compelling. I think Shing could be engaging. I actually... 
probably wouldn't be as engaged by the the politic level of a mistress kind of stuff, but it's definitely ripe for if you have the right group for doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, using alchemy in stage in set piece fights would just be the fights in this and the the dyn- the dynamic nature of everything that goes into them is something about this setting and this show that just makes me want to be like yes yes please <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the alchemy is such a cool setting element i mean it's a decisive one obviously what's cool about it too is that it makes the setting so much more engaging because it makes them matter more to the combat like it makes me think of the um the battle with pride and kimberly uh versus like uh, you know i think ling is there edward is there alphonse is there toward the end of the series they're outside this town and they're like in the forest they're like mm-hmm. at the edge of the forest and they're having this big fight that's a great example where like it really pulls the setting in like the townspeople are threatened there's this whole thing of illumination like pride is kind of powerless without shadows so if you can put out the lights of the town then it's dark out in the woods and Pride can't do much, but nobody can see at the same time. And then later in the same fight, you have like Pride cuts down a bunch of trees so that there's no place for the heroes to hide. The fact that we're in a forest town really matters to that fight. And so alchemy is just like having these big set pieces. It makes you pay attention to the GM's box text because this is going to matter in the fight. Yeah. It's like, oh, and there's a building with bricks up there. Oh, I'm going to grab those bricks and I'm going to make a giant fist to punch that guy over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, just looking lovingly at the architecture as you walk into town, like, enjoy it while it lasts, Bricks, you're about to be hands. And it doesn't it doesn't matter what character it is, like, they all interact with the environment somehow, and it's, yeah. it's great. I agree with that completely. Uh, yeah, I mean, so there there's that alchemy aspect. I think um, you were talking about um, about Briggs. I'm right there with you. I think that, that place is awesome. I, I like the fact that regular automail doesn't work very very well there. You need like an upgrade to your automail. So it's almost like a it's like a Metroid situation where you yeah. kind of got to get your upgrade before you can function there properly. Oh no, that that, um, that portion of the show definitely was like, huh? And now we need our. It definitely felt like that. Oh, we enter an area where our current equipment is outdated, and we really need to stop getting upgrade before we are at full efficiency <laughs> here. And then it upgrades us for the rest of the show. Like it was just another aspect of the show feeling like a tabletop game. Yeah, I love the way that these. I mean, we talked about how these characters learn and and grow, and a lot of that is character stuff. But they also grow in their abilities in a way that feels very organic and engages the setting. Like, I like that, um, you know, when when Edward first runs up against Greed, Greed has this, like, impenetrable shield that he can put up. And that shield basically dooms Edward almost in that fight until he figures it out, until he figures out that he can alchemically manipulate it. And after that, we actually learn later in the show that Edward has really taken advantage of this knowledge. Like, it's really affected the way that he fights. And it, in a certain sense, like the the tactical ability to do that and like the training too, the additional martial arts training the characters get throughout the show after they kind of get their asses kicked a couple times, it changes what's possible for them because it turns enemies from like unassailable masterminds into doable challenges in a way that opens up like what are we capable of? Where can we go and what adventures can we have? So I, I love that as well. Man, other settings that would, I love Ishval. Yeah, that whole thing is like there are so many adventures to be had among the Ishvalans. We barely touch on here because the story is all about that war, but it's a whole culture with a religion that we learn a little about. Yeah, there's there's so many little nuances. There is a whole lot more to every culture and setting in this show than what the show itself 
was able to get to in large detail, and it, it gave just enough detail for you to know that the detail was there. Yeah, that, and that's a great way to do your storytelling, too, I think. I mean, people, I think there's a, you know, it's in vogue now to do minimal GM prep, and that's great for a lot of reasons. You know, it opens the hobby up to more people you know, to be GMs. But if you are a GM who likes to do a lot of prep, or like, you know, maybe you're hobby, you know, there is sometimes the GM who is like the combination GM novelist, you know, and the right way to do that is write a lot of stuff about places like Ishval, about Shing, but then don't necessarily bring it to the table. Yeah. Just have that detail to throw out at the right moment. So when you meet uh, the exile from Shing, or when you meet the Ishvalan scholar who's come to learn about your style of alchemy, they've got details to throw out in conversation that make the players realize, oh, if we decide to go over there, there's a whole country there. There's stuff figured out. It's not just a stereotype. I think that makes an impression. And even if players don't decide to go there, the fact that they know it's a real place, that, that there is a reality to it, gives weight to the yeah. NPCs and the, the plot elements that relate to it. There's a gravity there that makes actual decisions feel amazing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and that's really important in this show. I think that as we've been talking about, having something in the setting that you're hooked into, like this really matters to me and it matters what I do is so important because while I wouldn't say the show is primarily focused on ethics, it is definitely focused on characters in their capacity as decision makers. You know, the theme of the show that kind of gets wrapped up at the end is a lot about power and how power relates to like living as a human in the world. And I think if, if, if there's one defining thing that a good PC in this game needs, it is power that allows them to shape their own lives in the world. And they're put in a difficult situation deciding how they're going to use that power. Yeah. And I, I, that's almost like a thing you would want on the character sheet is how does my, my character feel? How far are they willing to go to use in using people for power? It, that is something you will want to think about at some point, even if it's not on the character sheet. It is something you want to have thought about is, you know, how does this person go about getting and holding power and at what costs oh yeah 100 percent. i you know going back to character a little bit this maybe ties into setting i would i would really recommend a, some kind of a life path or at least leading questions for character creation here to generate that like backstory that i'm i, I really want to see and a big part of that would be you know alchemy is about trading something valuable for something else that's what power is with alchemy what do you routinely trade and what do you routinely trade it for would be a great way to sort of summarize who your character is. What do I sacrifice and what do I sacrifice it to get? Because I think every alchemist has a distinctive and interesting answer to that question. Every character has an interesting and distinctive answer to that question. True, true. Yeah, I mean, you, I'm running down the list. You know, you can think about these characters in terms of, you know, what have they sacrificed? That, that goes to this element of history where I love that we meet these characters not uniformly at the moment before they make the dramatic decision, but oftentimes after. And so we meet characters who are living with having sacrificed, which is another really fascinating way to meet and play a character. Yeah, I mean, one of the ones, Olivier Armstrong comes to mind. She does, she's got this whole outlook on the world that is, you know, you earn my respect and then I will give it fully. And it's just, you know, this trading of respect and, based on competency that's irrespective of anything other than competency. And it, she doesn't really make any decisions. Like, you don't see her develop that over the course of the show, but you see the effect of the fact that that is how she believes the entirety of her time on screen. 
Yeah, I think that's true. You know, Olivier is a great example of a character who she has made such a firm decision that we don't see her doing a lot of kind of shilly-shallying about it. We don't see a lot of Hamlet from Olivier, ironically. Uh, What we see is she's made such a firm decision about what's important that every time we meet her, it hammers that same point, which is that I will buy survival by any means necessary, at any cost. I'm going to live. I'm going to make it. And I'm going to do this thing I've committed to with my full strength. There's a ruthlessness to Olivia that we don't see in others. And I think that her kind of um, rocky relationship with her brother maybe shows what she potentially has sacrificed for that because she is so averse to weakness. You know, uh, Major Armstrong is a likable guy, but his sister really has this, I, I feel like a pretty serious disdain for him because she has, she has so totally cut herself off from weakness. She's she sacrificed her vulnerability and her ability to connect with people for the strength that she felt was necessary to achieve her goals and aspirations. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And that's maybe part of what makes Briggs so different to kind of go back to setting. A lot of the places in this show, you know, whether it is Central Command or whether it is, you know, Resinbull or Briggs, it represents a different way of life. You know, this really does feel like a whole country in a mistress with all these different communities facing different challenges. And you can see how people have adapted to them. And Briggs is a place where if you're going to live here, there's a lot of things you need to cast off. You can't be weak here. That luxury doesn't exist. Likewise, you know, then if we go to Resinbull, we can see that uh, if we follow Von Hohenheim's story, it feels like this idyllic place that he came to value. And it's really interesting how, how he pays for that opportunity and also how he ultimately is not willing to pay to stay there. Like, Von Hohenheim doesn't raise his kids, as important as that is. And he, you can continually feel like that's a man who has to live with that decision. Uh, it's, it's pretty rough, and it really goes to the core of who he is. Another aspect of setting I really want to talk about here is uh, the, the history aspect, the time frame of it. This happens all in the aftermath of the Ishvalan War. And I think that is, especially for like this particular story being told in this anime, the Ishvalan War is like a central foreground for every character. Do you have any interest in playing earlier or later in this time frame? Or would you like to keep this like post-Ishvalan War period? I think you could possibly do before. You could do either. Um, one of the things they point out is that there are conflicts all around the entire time. This is a young country that has spread and conquered its way to the size and borders it has now. Um, and that mm-hmm. there are conflicts on every side all the time. And so I think you could do both before or after the Ishvalan War, which is one of the recent historical events for this campaign that shape a lot. But I think you could come up with something similar at any point in this nation or really any nation's history. Yeah, that's an interesting point. As decisive as this is for these characters, if you moved it to a different point in Amestris's history, you would just as easily be able to come up with a different conflict if you want to play a character who's got something like that in their backstory. I mean, we could play military alchemists at the birth of Amestris, both inventing alchemy and pushing out the borders of the country. So there are all kinds of options here for what you could do with this setting historically. I think that's really true. I I think that there are a lot of exciting possibilities in my mind for setting this earlier or later. One thing I would watch out for with setting it earlier is that there's a lot of revelation that happens over the course of the series. And 
I think while it is satisfying to see the Elrics and, you know, some of the other heroes sort of awaken to what a Mestris is and learn what they're about and, and fight against evil, it might be frustrating if you're a fan of the series to play characters who from start to finish of the campaign are on the wrong side, who either A, don't know that they're on the wrong side, or B, find out about it and can't do anything because continuity kind of demands that things not get resolved until the anime. So that would be something to watch out for. If I were going to yes. game this much earlier, I would maybe like try to take the player group away from being loyal servants of the Amestrian government just so they don't start to feel, you know. Yeah, I have some thoughts on that that I'm saving for the gritty reboot part of this show. So Ah, okay. Then I will be I'll be eager to hear that. Before we move on to those, uh, maybe let's talk, uh, if we can at all summarize something so complicated, about the cosmology of this show, which is another huge part of the setting. Maybe you can tell me what the hell is going on <laughs> with the like the truth gates and, um, you know, I mean, I have my theories, but you're the one who's seen this anime three times. What's happening with the cosmology in this show? <sighs> there is a large portion of the end of this series that just kind of becomes, okay, and then something weird and anime and vaguely spiritualistic happens repeatedly. But there is a concept called truth, or they they call it truth or God, or they just use it as this vague, kind of antagonistic presence that kind of reacts to a person based on who they are and what it is they're after that kind of governs alchemy it, it is not it is not very clear and you might be able to tell i have seen it three times and there's a <laughs> lot of it that is just kind of like and then this happens and then this happens <laughs> there's a lot of you know you go through the portal and you see how stuff works more and then you forget it <laughs> because your brain can't <laughs> handle it and I, I, it kind of goes back to that core philosophy where, you know, we can only handle so much information. We aren't big enough or strong enough to handle all of the information out there is, is one of the core ideas. And so they have this entity called truth that is tied to your understanding of alchemy because those, those doors that are, that they come through when they go through a portal of truth those doors represent their internal understandings of alchemy, which is why the designs on the back all are different for each character. That's how they've organized information, which it tells you even more information about each character when you get to see their own individual doors. But it is convoluted, and I don't think necessarily needs to be engaged very strongly. Yeah, I mean, not not on the level of philosophy. I think that's true. Like, I think that uh, a deep philosophical understanding of what's supposed to be happening here is not at all necessary to game this or to enjoy, you know, running it or playing it or whatever. Certainly not to watch the anime. But I do think there are elements of it that really set the tone. So, for example, we talked last time about equivalent exchange, right? Like, that's a cosmological sort of constant that is only challenged really at the end of the series, where we get this idea that everything you get from alchemy has to be paid for with something of equivalent value. That's thematic, and so that's important to enforce. Um, you know, we don't need to get into, you know, all the sort of Kabbalistic imagery or whatever that surrounds the discussion of equivalent exchange. We can just have that theme. I do wonder whether truth is on that level in a certain way. Like, because they'll sometimes call it God, but what they actually encounter when um, 
when alchemists go through, they, you know, when they open a truth gate, which is mainly done by trying to do human transmutation in the show, what they face is this sort of like whited out version of themselves. And we learn at the end of the series that everyone has their own gate that sort of like is their ability to perform alchemy. So what it feels like to me, because there's this idea in the show of like one is all and all is one. That's something, a key philosophical idea they hit again and again. It feels like everyone is one being, everything is one thing, and maybe that is God. But every individual has their own window into it, like their own perspective on it. And that's represented by the gate, right? So like everybody has their own personal gate into this one truth. And so what you're faced with when you get there is kind of your own reflection that represents, you know, God as you in a sense. And the challenge of truth, how malevolent truth is, that seems to me like as um, esoteric as it is to actually be really important to the show because we finally do get like a moral message at the end of the show. Like for, for such a nuanced and ambiguous show, finally, literally, God tells our protagonist, you got the right answer, like in the <laughs> second to last episode. Um, and the right answer turns out to be trade the gate, therefore trade the alchemy for your connection to other people. Like what you're supposed to be doing is having friends and a family and relying on each other. Give up your power to force yourself on the world and trade the things you have that you value for something else. And that's so interesting because throughout the series, this God portrayal has been so um, seemingly malevolent. It's always very antagonistic and confrontational, which if you think about it, truth can often feel that way when we are confronted with things we do not necessarily want to know or, you know, yeah. truths that don't line up with how we wanted them to be. Yes, it's it's the accusatory aspect of the truth. You know, when you're encountered with the truth about something, if it's the unvarnished truth, it's also going to be a little bit of an accusation, right? Because none of us are perfect. And so there's almost that like, uh, satanic in the sense of like uh, the Satan of the book of Job, right? Who is like the the accuser, the prosecutor. Yeah. It's like when you meet the truth, it's you accusing you because you're coming there to trade something you care about for something else. And so it's sort of waiting for you, testing you to see if you find the right path through, which basically it seems like almost no one does. Um, everyone gets kind of hooked on that idea of I can get what I need and what I want if I just like trade the right thing. If I use my power to manipulate the situation, I can force my vision of what my life should be. And and it's a dead end, you know, because every time you make it, every step forward is also a step back because of equivalent exchange. So I think that that aspect, like the cosmology of the show, at least in that sense, there is a right answer built into this universe. And so I think that a story set in this universe should at least respect that. And then maybe use that as a basis to spin off your um, mystical symbology and not be too tight about that, right? You don't need to be a scholar of Kabbalah to run this game. You could just look up some symbols and set them up in a way that conveys the basic, fairly simple moral messages of the show. Yeah. I will say it's actually pretty interesting. I don't... Uh, that's an aspect of this setting, the truth and the cosmology, that is actually very unappealing to me. It comes up in this series, in, in this show, as a direct tie-in to the plot. And I... Hmm don't see readily how to make it specifically useful to an outside plot because it almost always comes up as a direct commentary on the Ulrich brothers attempt to get their bodies back. And so mm. if you're not doing that 
I'm not 100% sure how you would use that. I can definitely see what you're saying there. I definitely would not use it as heavily as it's used in the anime, especially because you want probably players who've seen this. And I feel like the whole gate, truth gate thing really gets beaten pretty heavily over the course of the series. If I were going to use it, I would use it at maybe one or two key points in your campaign, maybe at the beginning and the end. And the scenes I'd be looking at to make it compelling would be the initial attempt to bring back their mother in like episode two of this series. That's a really cool scene. And it's cool, not just because of the truth gate, but because of like this very grisly scenario, you know, where like they bring their mother back, but it's all wrong. And, um, you know, everything is screwed up. And this young boy has to like sacrifice his leg, like all that stuff is cool. Then at the very end, I think father's encounter with the truth would be a great like maybe template for how to run this in a way that would be individualized to your plot. Because since he's not one of the Elrics, like his story is not really the story of the show. It's an example of how to take an outside character and challenge them with the truth. Yeah. But yeah, I, I see what you mean that like I you could absolutely run a really cool full metal alchemist campaign and never once touch a truth gate and you would be none the poorer for it. No. But maybe understanding just a little of like what's behind it, what the cosmology is, would help you with your designs. For example, if you're designing a dungeon and you want to have like sigils everywhere, you know, you want to have symbols. Um, just making sure that your world's philosophy is not running directly counter to what's portrayed in the show, I think would help it be um, coherent. If you care about that at all, which I do, but maybe some players wouldn't. I, I do think a lot of campaigns, especially with people who play this and know the world and are wanting to play Alchemist, you're going to run into Truth Gates a lot just because of the uh, becoming your own transmutation circle aspect. Mm -hmm. Though I think with some creativity, you know, you could do something like, you know, Major Armstrong's gauntlets that have his sigils on them or, you know, Colonel Mustang's gloves that have his circles on them. Like, you could get around it, but I think that it's going to be a tempting, tempting to a particular kind of player to want to engage those in order to uh, gain that ability. That's something we should touch on. Maybe that'll be our last thing here in setting when we're talking about like the alchemy aspect of the setting. To be clear to the listener who maybe doesn't remember this from the anime, normally alchemists need a transmutation circle, an actual, you know, drawn representation of a circle to do their alchemy. Most alchemists have them like either on gloves or they draw them or like the silver al alchemist we were talking about earlier has tattoos on his palms. So he has to take off his gloves to do alchemy. But once you've been through a truth gate, you can use yourself as a transmutation circle. So like the Elrics don't need a circle to do alchemy. In my opinion, the former way is cooler. I would much rather play and have in my campaign alchemists who have some kind of cool like accessory that has cool magical symbols on them yeah. or like draw them during combat. That's so much cooler than just clapping your hands together, in my opinion. Yes, very much so. And it doesn't have to be slow. I mean, May, for example, has her little sigils that she throws out that it takes her like all of two seconds to whip out when with her leg when she needs to but i yeah i i definitely think it'd be cooler to have oh i've got tattoos or oh i've got these cool metal bracers or you know oh i've got that there the options are endless and i think that it would be a much better way to engage with the setting than the truth gates themselves but that temptation i think would still be there yeah, certain players are going to want that. And the players who want to have gone through a truth gate in their backstory so that they can do no circle transmutation, those are not the players you want to have truth gate in their backstory. No, they're not really the players you want to engage this game with. Because <laughs> that's that's <laughs> yeah. not really, this is not a game that you like try to milk for advantages and 
min-maxing your, your your character so that they can be even more competent. This the game is about story and relationships and humanizing and how everything feeds into who you are and how you relate to other people, especially the way you do violence. Like, the way you do violence is incredibly important to who you are and how you relate to other people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we were talking about saving the game earlier. We often refer back to our moral universe episode of saving the game. This is a setting with a such a strong moral universe uh, aspect to it because I think it is hardwired into tangible aspects of this setting that the attempt to gain power to solve your problems really is hubris and is doomed. That is so deep in this setting. It's not that you can never use violence or never use force, but it's always trying to get and stay on top using that power is folly. That's that's the message of this story, which means the power gamer is not going to have a fun time because if you're being true to the setting, you're dooming them right from character creation. You yeah. know, you're saying go, do your best to make to min max a character who can, you know, uh, tear down whole buildings and turn them into cannons and is the baddest ass alchemist who has ever lived. And the story is going to be about how that's useless because that's what Full Metal Alchemist is. <laughs> yep. So if you come to it trying to engage it on that level, you're engaging it badly. <laughs> yeah. And it's only fair to let the player know that, yeah, you know, like no. it's, it, it would be on a certain level, it'd be fun as the GM to like tell that player like, oh, yeah, sure. Put all your points in violence and alchemy, like absolutely. And let me teach you a lesson. But don't do that to your player. Let them know, like, you know, just so you know, this game is about characters with vast power who find that that power doesn't get them what they want. So please don't play that guy because I'm going to have to you know, kick you around. And I think I think anybody who's seen this show enough to want to play it is probably going to pick up on that. Mm -hmm. Now, we can't hold off any longer. I got to hear what you have to say about the gritty reboot, because I had a little trouble coming up with content for like how to make this game more sophisticated and darker. You said you've got some ideas. Let's hear them. If you uh, you look at the visual subtexts and the, the kind of the themes that run through this, uh, Amestris is modeled after a post-World War II-ish Germany sort of uh, vibe. Uh, you have mm -hmm. the Fuhrer King Bradley, you have their weapons um, all kind of have that vibe. You have the Ishvalans have a vaguely uh, Middle Eastern Israeli vibe to them. And mm -hmm. there's the parallels of how the uh, just how they were treated during the Ishvalan War of Extermination. Um, you've got all these other cultures and how they're treated. It, it, it is would be very easy to bring all of those threads and themes to the forefront to make this a very dark and gritty and depressing world. I mean, you could literally just run that game where this is early in Amestris and you are trying to expand the borders to the point that you need to by conquering and enslaving all the surrounding people. Yeah. And you, I mean, you could see how that would be both... Potentially very interesting, also potentially unplayably dark. Um, if you look at the story of, you know, Major Armstrong, everybody kind of has this backstory of what happened to them in the Ishvalan conflict. Uh, so for many of the characters, like for Mustang, it's that they did horrible things that they now really regret and kind of have scarred them. For Major Armstrong, it is essentially that he broke down with his inability to do those things and deal with this context and how he feels it was a weakness 
that he basically got sent away for becoming useless because he couldn't function in this environment with what he was being asked to do. That's a tragic story, and I think not an ungameable one. However, there is the risk that you end up with a player character who is more of a Kimbley, and you would have to be careful with who you're playing with and what their sensitivities are. Yes. I guess my comments on the Gritty Reboot is there is already a whole lot about this show that is so dark and potentially full of cultural significance and historical significance to, you know, real world history that they did a really good job of keeping the tone as light as they do through the anime Mm -hmm. while still, you know, managing to keep it serious. And so I would actually lean away from trying to make it grittier because it is already right on that cusp and it would be very easy to accidentally take it much darker than most people are going to be okay with. Yes, I think that's very true. And it's important to notice like the different situations you're putting characters in, depending on where you place them in their histories. I mean, I would love to play Colonel Mustang. But do I want to play him on the cusp of the order to exterminate the civilians in Ishval? Probably not. Because what I could do is like, Superman my way out of there, right? What I could do is like, human torch it and like use hot air to just like lift myself into the sky and fly home and tell everyone that everything is but that's not true to the setting or the character no what's true to the setting and the character is i do it and i don't think i want to play that now it's possible that that could that a situation like that could be presented in a way that it would be really compelling and it would be actually i don't know fun to play is exactly the word but it would be a way i would want to spend my time but it would have to be very carefully done What's interesting to me is the fact that if we then fast forward Mustang, you know, X number of years, the very same plot becomes something that is highly gameable and highly interesting because it's already in hindsight. I don't have to play doing it. I have to play grappling with having done it, which is like a totally different role playing challenge. Yeah. So, um, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I don't I don't have I was just going to basically say the same thing again. So that's not very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the like the philosophy and the metaphysics of this show. I think that could be engaged in a more um, sustained way. If you happen to have a, you know, if you're if you're doing this with like your philosophy major friends at university, then there are things to be done here. I think for most groups, that would not be terribly interesting. But you know, by all means, give me a call. Um, But uh, I also think that on the ethical front, that's maybe the one philosophical place that this could be darker and more sophisticated. If we wanted to generate situations that really call on these characters to make hard choices with their alchemy, I think like the way that this campaign, so to speak, like this story really shuts down the idea of breaking the taboo and doing human transmutation. It's not really an ethical choice because you can't do it. Well, I would say they do engage it. I mean, later when uh, Kimberly breaks pride and Alphonse out. And Alphonse has to make that decision on whether to use a Philosopher's Stone or not. That ah, becomes, yes, yes. That actually is a, a way that they do engage that again. They don't actually perform the human transmutation and the making of Philosopher's Stone. But then, you know, okay, so once this is done, when is it okay to use this power? And so that is a way they do, they do that. And so you could make this grittier by looking more closely at that. And there are there are glimpses of it throughout this show. I mean, even going back to the episode one, he makes a javelin out of his own blood. That's pretty grim right there. If you think about, you know, 
those kinds of situations showing up and how you want to engage things and what are you willing to sacrifice to see your ends done. You, there, there is, I think there is some profitable, it, it could be fun to do that kind of gaming. Fun is not quite the right word. I, I think it could be valuable to do that sort of gaming with the right group and the right GM, people that you trust. That I, when you when you put it that way, when you like think about that javelin, it makes me think of um, in a Powered by the Apocalypse games. You know, you can use like an assess the situation or something like that, like in masks, to figure out what's going to need to be done to resolve a situation or to like come out on top or to get someone to do what you want them to do. Something like that, some way to bring the table around to, like I want to do this with my character. It's important to me in the plot, and to have the GM say, "Okay, what do you give me?" Yeah, and really open up a conversation about like you know on a deep level like I will give you my whole character's life like this would be a great time for me to die because I want this so much or conversely well there's this person I care about a lot but their life is on the table because this is huge so maybe I lose them that would be a great position to put players in that could go very dark but it would also really raise the central questions of this show in a way where you know it's like okay you care about this Tell me how much. Show me how far exactly you'll go. And if the GM follows through on that and makes you pay that price, I think that could be a very like hard-hitting way to play this game. I, I think, yes, that would be how you would do a darker version of this well, would be to engage that question of, in, engage those questions of how much things matter and how much you're willing to give up for what you say you care about. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there's something too, there's a, there's a, a little bit of a brightness at the end of the show. Certainly the last episode is like hilariously over the top, like fluffy and fun ending for a show <laughs> that's gotten so dark. But like, I think there's a there's an element at the end of this series that suggests that there's a way around equivalent exchange with human interaction. The idea that freely giving of yourself, giving more than was given to you is this kind of grace that can transcend equivalent exchange. And that would be an interesting way to this could be made darker by subtracting it but i think it would also be a nice way to offset extreme darkness to add that possibility and really encourage characters to 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 have two different ways of approaching a situation one of which is control it and that means sacrifice and that means paying something and maybe sacrificing others in some cases or don't worry about controlling it so much give yourself to it, you know, unstintingly and see where that gets you. You can have a much more mature game that isn't necessarily dark all the time, but it would be very much worth playing by exploring that. Mm -hmm. And that there's a, there's a place to play there because this is a game, right? With player agency that like, because part of this is getting, getting over yourself, you know, getting over your ability to dominate the world. And that could really be reflected with, with uh, player agency with the ability to say, one thing you can sacrifice is your right to tell me as a GM exactly how this is going to go down. You could sort of have it so that like, basically the dark side is adversarial GMing. You know, the dark side is, okay, well, I paid X number of points at because I sacrificed an, an NPC was five points of importance to me. Yeah. Therefore, I get to tell you exactly how this combat ends down to the, down to the minute, down to the, the pound of stone plunging into my opponent. Or I can just not do that and and let there be some uncertainty about how this is going to work out and just not do adversarial gaming. Let the world be the world. That would be a really fun way to, you know, in game terms, represent this dichotomy. Yeah. I mean, tabletop gaming isn't 
it shouldn't really be an adversarial. If you're doing it adversarially, you're not really doing tabletop gaming right, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's a space for it, but it's not a good default. I think that it's a, you know, if you're doing a very traditional game where it's like, I am the master of the devious dungeon of traps, and you must try to navigate them, then it's appropriate because that's what you're getting in for, right? If you're playing Tomb of Horrors, like old school or something like yeah. that, then sure, because that's what you're that that's what you signed up for. But generally speaking, that's not the GM's role. Yeah, and it's always interesting to see how important it is to certain players to absolutely control something, you know. And that's very thematic to this show. Let's get on to our final stuff. Pros of gaming, Full Metal Alchemist, colon, Brotherhood. There are so many different ways you could take this that are interesting and so many different characters that you could be that are worth playing. That's a huge one. I love all these characters. I mean, I almost, it's hard to think of a character I wouldn't love to play in a campaign. That's huge. Also, I think just, I mean, both characters and setting. There's so much room here. There's so much interesting space that we haven't yet told a story about. That is really compelling to me. I feel absolutely confident in my ability to create a story equally as sprawling as the one in the anime that does not even touch it at all in this world with some of these characters. Yeah. It's that big. I mean, they conclude it in such a way that you could go anywhere you wanted to and take any of the characters you wanted to and go there. Yeah, particularly like uh, the Colonel, you know, Colonel Mustang rising to prominence in Amestris. That is a whole new, a brave new world of adventuring because the world is going to change so much. Also, we keep talking about like the fight scenes, the alchemy. These are key setting elements that are not restrictive, right? You don't have to do this story again. You don't have to do other, you know, flame alchemists and other stone alchemists. You could do wildly creative things with this. It's still going to feel like this show, but you have all this space to do like a new story with new potential for fight scenes and stuff. Like just the prospect of looking down at a, like a character creation document, like a section of a book, and seeing my options for building a state alchemist just fills me with joy. I want to play it. Yes, absolutely. Cons of gaming Full Metal Alchemist, colon Brotherhood. I would say probably trying to wrap your head around the cosmology might be an actual con to this series mm. at times. Yeah, I know I had trouble with it. I mean, I you know, I didn't have quite as much prep time for this episode as I often do because of, you know, the uh, influence of Turtles overwhelmingly in my life of late but um yeah trying to totally understand what this show was about and like what was happening with the magic it was hard i also i don't know i i like this show so much but as i pointed out some of the later plots seemed to me like we were very deep in something that started to feel if not exactly directionless then like there might have been too much going on for me to really track it and it started to feel weird like why are these characters together what was the point of this thing we just did i think that's a real concern when you have something as sprawling as this and um there's so much here that if you tried to use it all to the extent that the show does i think you might run afoul of the same problem in your plots where people start to get a little bit confused and like forgetful about what they're doing yeah i would i would actually was just thinking that it would be you have to be very careful playing this to keep the tone without trying to take the scope and weight of what this story arc was because if you tried mm. to do that 
you can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there's too much going on here for a coherent tabletop game, much less a coherent TV show at times. That's that's very true, especially because you have a, a fixed set of protagonists in a role-playing game that is a smaller group. I mean, this story already, as you say, like occasionally sort of weaves in and out of being totally coherent on the show when we can freely switch perspectives. If we're really stuck in the perspectives of like four of these characters, they just can't be enough places and see enough things for this all to hang together. So I think it would be very productive to narrow in and figure out what part of this we want to address. And and what's nice about that is that because there is so much space, we can really balloon out the parts of the show we want to talk about to make them fully gameable. So like a place like, uh, I know you weren't a big huge fan of it, but like Lior, if you're interested in some of that stuff, you could build it into a whole campaign. Yeah. There's enough space in Lior to flesh out the NPC cast, and that'll help you really focus down and do a story that's kind of like mainly in Central and Lior, and maybe there's one guy from Shing if somebody wants to play him. And, you know, that's plenty of space to play in. Absolutely. Overall, I think we can agree that this is highly gameable. Yes. Lots and lots of options for characters, for original characters, lots and lots of options for plots. What kind of system would you recommend for this? Um, I would probably want to go with something... I've not played Fate, but the aspects sound like something that would be very helpful uh, and very useful here. I think a Powered by the Apocalypse system could be very good. You could easily make dozens of playbooks that would kind of flavor so much of this world. A system I think that you could work with and do some of this with would be the uh, the Blades in the Dark system. Hmm. Um, I think you'd have to do a little bit of working with that one to adjust because that, that story very much tells a particular kind of story with the way its dice mechanics work. But I think that there's a lot of core mechanic there that would work very, very well, especially with the alchemy system. Yeah, the alchemy is really part of the... That's that's what's really tricky here. I'm interested in the idea of using Blades in the Dark, some kind of hack for it. I would maybe not exactly recommend against, but for me personally, I would be less inclined to go with something like Fate because of it's so, such a heavily freeform aspect to that game. I feel like I want just a little more crunch to help make the fights as spectacular and as meaningful as as to give them as much story as I want them to have. So I would maybe take the next step into something like, uh, say, Savage Worlds or, um, you know, various versions of Feng Shui yeah. might work for this. Both of those would work pretty well, I think. Yeah, a little more mechanical crunch. Uh, another idea I had, you never want to recommend Exalted to play something, right? Uh, because Exalted is its own world with its own setting, and that's like hardwired into the mechanics. But what I might consider doing is doing a sort of uh, World of Darkness hack, whatever your favorite flavor of World of Darkness is, and then sort of stealing the stunt mechanic from Exalted, where like you use a currency to power your stuff, and you get more of that currency by stunting. So doing you know elaborate and stylish descriptions of what you do. Okay. I think that would be an interesting way, because World of Darkness is maybe right in that sweet spot of what I'm looking for for this, where it's nice and crunchy. I mean, we can have a system specifically for, you know, using a brawling attack on somebody versus a martial arts attack. We can have a mechanic for, you know, dodging versus parrying with your sword. So it does feel tactically deep enough, but it's not like, you know, a D&D, where we're really getting into the crunchy, crunchy stuff that's going to detract from the narrative of combat. And then by adding that exalted stunt stuff on top, I think you would really be um, encouraging people to get into having fun with the fight scenes and not worry too much about it. Because like, while it is deep in a sense, you don't you can't really min max combat that much if you keep it nice and simple with like core World of Darkness rules. 
No. Um, so I would maybe go in that direction. And, and that gives you like a nice substantial skill list, which I think would be nice. Like some characters in this show, for example, are better at bureaucracy than others are. Yes. Um, you know, some of them are better at politics. Some of them are better at science. So you've got a nice big skill list, which I think would suit this show because um, there are lots and lots of characters who have lots and lots of different specialties. And sometimes characters are fish out of water. It's important when you have such powerful characters that sometimes you're not good at a thing. Yeah. And uh, having a little more of a skill list would help with that. But yeah, those are those are my basic thoughts. And I think the cinematic combat is one of the biggest things because we can we can pl- role play a lot of the themes, a lot of these characters history and stuff. But when it comes to the alchemy, the fights, uh, we got to have a system that makes it fun. Yes. So I think I think that's it. Amazingly for this very, very cool show. Thank you so much for joining me, uh, Alistair. I would never have done this show if you had not brought it to me because we don't do anime. So I am very grateful. Is there anything you would like to plug? Well, I would recommend going and listening to the Saving the Game podcast for those of your listeners that uh, maybe haven't already at this point. The I know the Inroads Ministries has games that they've played with their in-house GM that they've put on their YouTube channel that have been a lot of fun. I've actually been in a couple of those, but uh, they are very welcoming and they do a lot of work with uh, just some of the various groups around the gaming community that look at improving overall gaming community health, uh, like the Bodana group. And so I think, you know, going and looking into some of that stuff could be really cool for your listeners. Yeah, definitely. Uh, don't be a Kimberly, be an Armstrong, go check out inroads and uh, do good things for people. So that's it for Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Um, as for us, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Gameable Podcast. You can go to gameabledisneypodcast.tumblr.com to find all of our old episodes. And you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also email us uh, at gameablepodcast at gmail.com if you like. So next week, and it will be next week, the release of this Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood episode was a little bit wonky because of my trip to King of Trios this year. It was delayed a bit, but next week, we're going to have the first episode of something I've had in the can for quite a while. Another really cool, very sophisticated, very fun cartoon with great fight scenes. Join me next time as we discuss Young Justice in an episode I recorded seemingly years ago with Rich Howard from Whelmed, the YJ Files podcast. I'm really excited to finally drop this one. I will see you next time. Have a good one. This has been episode 54 of the Gameable Saturday Morning Podcast. Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood is property of its owners. This episode's music, used under Creative Commons licenses, includes We Are Romantic Suiciders by Ryoma Maeda and Romantic Suiciders. Find their work at ryomamaeda.com. That's R-Y-O-M-A-M-A-E-D-A.com. One-Eyed Maestro by Kevin McLeod. Find his work at Incompetech.com. And Hitanas Mojadas by Polka Madre. The Gameable Saturday Morning logo is by Claire Mulcairn. This episode is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license 4.0. Thanks for listening.